so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, He exercised you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirits answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirits was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also many, those who had practiced magic, brought in their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it was totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. As a result, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In verse 23, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Let's pray. Father, help us to glean from Paul's experience in Ephesus what you want us to understand as a church today and help us to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Before I go into the sermon, I'd like to take about 10 minutes. This is a a real deviation for me and... The fact that I've got a PowerPoint is a real deviation for me. (laughs) So I want to just share with you, I'm going to take 10 minutes and then we'll go into our sermon. But the title of my sermon this morning is When God's at Work, When God is at Work, the Enemy is Not Far Behind. And this morning, I want to cast a vision for North Valley Bible Church so that we have a sense of purpose and a sense of direction for God, where God is leading us. But I guarantee you this, that if we put our minds and our heart to work, there's going to be opposition, and we need to be prepared for that. And so I just want to briefly share with you what our vision and purpose, and our vision is simple. It's equipping believers to become more like Christ. That's what we're all about. We haven't changed anything. That's always been the vision of North Valley Bible Church. But now it's just good to put it in front of us. Our vision is to equip people to become more like Christ. And what is it that God wants us to do then? He wants us to reach people for Christ. The more I become like Christ, the more I will reach others for Christ. Next slide, Josh. The biblical basis for this is found in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. And I want you just to focus on the words that I've got underscored because those are the things that really make up our vision. It says, he himself, that's Jesus. Notice it's emphatic with the pronoun, he himself. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The word for is the reason why he himself gave these things, these people, for equipping saints. Now, why does God want saints to be equipped? For work of ministry 
and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, how long does that take? And what's the goal? The word till tells us that. Till we come to what? The unity of the faith. And what's the unity of the faith? What's that look like? It's the knowledge of the Son of God, a perfect man, the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are here to equip saints to become like Christ. And what is the result of that? Verse 16, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, the growth of the body. When we become like Christ and we're using our spiritual gifts, we will reach others. And this body will grow, not because we're concerned about numbers. We're concerned about reaching souls for Jesus. Our next slide, Josh. The purpose of North Valley Bible Church. Christ sovereignly gives gifted people to this church. Gifted individuals equip saints, prepare them for ministry. When believers are equipped, it will produce unity and maturity. Mature believers are reproducing new believers. Thank you, Josh. The next one. How do we accomplish this? Number one, through effective and fervent prayer. Second, expository preaching. Third, spirit-filled worship. Fourth, purposeful discipleship and training. We'll talk about these more, and I just want to give you the, a view today of where we're going to go. Genuine fellowship through small groups. Opportunities to minister through church membership. Church membership, what do I mean by that? I mean that you're born again, that you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be a part of a local church. It says in Acts chapter 2, Verse 44, as many as those who received the word were baptized, received the word and were baptized, they were added to the church. Apollos left the church at Ephesus and they sent a letter of recommendation to Corinth to say, yes, this man's born again. And he became a part of that local church in Corinth and used his spiritual gifts there. So that's really all we're talking about in membership. And we can go into greater detail about what that means. It means supporting the doctrines of this church and saying, yes, this is where I'm committed this is where I want to see the body of Christ grow. Our next slide. Effective and fervent prayer. I love this quote by William Cooper. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. This is the road to victory. It's on our knees. It's through prayer. Psalm, Psalm 27.1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. Some examples, we can have designated times for intensive prayer. We have Wednesday night and I know many of you can't make it because of work schedules, but maybe those small groups or maybe Sunday nights we can designate for just special times for prayer for the church and for ministry, for people that you're witnessing to, for physical needs that you might have, for financial burdens that you might be carrying. Next slide, Josh. Expository preaching. I hope I don't have to explain that. I hope I can model that to our church. What is expository preaching? It means verse-by-verse verse detailed explanation of the biblical passage in its original meeting in order to draw out the proper application for life. So we're going to look at the biblical text on Sunday morning. What did the original author intend the Bible only has one purpose. We don't sit around and say, well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? No, that's pooled ignorance. I want to know what did the Holy Spirit mean and what is that original intent and now what is the application? Why? Why do we do expository biblical teaching? The Bible gives propositional statements, 
Statements that can be evaluated as true. That's what I mean by a propositional statement. It must be understood within a paragraph. I call this the synthesis principle of Bible interpretation. And I think this is lost in most churches. It's lost in most Bible studies. The synthesis, I look at a verse. What does that verse mean within that paragraph? What does that paragraph then mean in the chapter? It exp- this will explain a lot of misunderstanding of, of doctrine. And what does that mean within the book? And then what does it mean within the scope of the Bible? A lot of heretical teaching is all because this principle is not applied. Result of expository teaching. Paul said to Timothy, till I come give attendance to reading the Bible. Expository teaching. Exhortation, doctrine. Meditate on these. Give yourself entirely to them. Why? What's the result? That your profiting appears to all. When you've been in the Word of God, you've been hearing good, sound Bible teaching, you're going to grow, and it's going to be evident to others. Next one, one, Josh. Spirit-filled worship. What is worship? It's a genuine, heartfelt posture of the soul. That's what it is. It's not entertainment. It's not our music. It's none of those things. Those things are important, and they help us, but it's our soul before God. It moves beyond the question of mere form, expecting an encounter with God. Michael Milton said this in his book on what the basics of a church are. 423, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. What is the purpose of worship? Worship prepares our heart for an encounter with the living God. Psalm 84.2, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. God. Worship reminds us to humble ourselves and revere God. Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. It brings humility to us when we worship God. Next slide, Josh. How do we worship? We worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit, Jesus is teaching that worship must be an inner act of the heart, not something induced by props or carnal manipulation. It's our hearts before God. In truth means that we must worship God consistent with His Word and consistent with God's character. Worship is reciprocal. It's not us up here or the worship leaders and you being passive. It's reciprocal. It's one another. That means that we can... Invite people to do special music, reading of poetry, whatever your gift is. It's reciprocal. It's one another. The small groups that we want to do in homes, it's going to produce this reciprocal type of worship. We are not to be passive or to be entertained, but we are speaking to one another. That's the reciprocal pronoun right there. How? In psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, giving from your heart. Thanks always to God for all things. Worship through giving. So we're going to start taking up an offering on Sunday morning. Uh, when David was preparing for the building of the temple, he said, this is a great work because it's not for us. It is for the Lord. And people willingly, it brings unity to our body. It gives us a sense that we are all doing this corporately together to build the body of Christ. So worship. Paul says this about the offerings that were given to him, the finances that were sent to Paul. Paul says, when they were given to me, it was a sweet-smelling aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting your offering in that box, 
But I want you to think about symbolically when you're putting that offering in the offering plate, this is going to God and we are doing this together. And this is a worship that's going into the nostrils of our Lord. It's a sweet aroma to Him. Okay, next slide, Josh. Purposeful discipleship and training. The last commandment was to make disciples. I want to quickly go through this. Uh, the last um, part, teaching, that consists of explaining, installing, imparting the Lord's instruction. Next slide, Josh. This will kind of tell you how we're going to do this, training and equipping every believer on how to study the Bible. We're going to have special designated times on Sunday evenings, and the first thing that I would like to do is how to do your own inductive Bible study. Go through sound Bible study methods. Train our church to do this. Another thing we can do is equip individuals who are gifted at Bible teaching how they can teach others. Training small group leaders to lead fellowship groups. Thorough, intentional training sessions. Judy's going to be getting one on Tuesday night on women. And the topic is, what do you do when God doesn't fix it? Everybody has faced that in your life. And that is a Bible study to do that. On Sunday mornings, we're going to do a book called The Peacemaker. And we're going to go through a video series training us how to be equipped to work through interpersonal relationships that are going wrong. How do we biblically handle those? That will be one of our training sessions that we're going to do through Sunday school in our adult time. Mentoring, practical applications of what we learned. Okay, Josh. Fellowship groups, and I will speak more about what these are probably later on. I don't have time this morning, but I would like to see people hosting them in their homes where we come together. Uh, I'll just quickly give the definition. It's a multiplying body of believers that meet regularly for edification, ministering one another, and prayer and evangelism. The biblical definition, or the biblical, um, uh, uh, I can't think of the word right now, Pre precedent for that is found in, in Acts. The precedent for that, they also met from house to house, taking their meals together, gladness and sincerity of heart. The Lord was adding daily those who are being saved. Small home meetings provide non-threatening atmosphere that's conducive to open fellowship. I've been in, all, in small groups, and spiritual giftedness and spiritual gifts, they come to the surface in a small group. They don't come together on a Sunday morning. We don't have time. We don't get to hear each other's needs. But when you're in a small group and you begin to share, you've got a, a need for encouragement. You have a financial need. You have a need for evangelism. Those people who have those gifts, they just gravitate. And when those needs are shared, people who have that gift can come and plug into that need. Next slide, Josh. Opportunities for ministry. And these are just some of the things that we do as a church. Um, we... I'm going to end here because I don't want to eat up all my sermon time. And you're saying, oh, we got the Lord's Supper. You're going to teach, Pat? Oh, you're going to take us through another expository message, right? Yes, I am. Amen. <laughs> but these are just a few. I didn't list all of them. But teaching adults, children ministry, Adriana is leading that. Tracy's helping her. Women's ministry, Judy's doing that. Worship team, Jordan's leading that up. Fellowship groups, I will be leading that. Special events. I believe Bonnie is doing the special events when we have things like the Harvest Party and the White Elephant. Um, Bev is, uh, leads up another special event, the Christmas uh, box thing. So a lot of people doing these things, cleaning and maintenance. Um, Mrs. De La Rosa is helping with that as well as uh, Bonnie, I believe, greeting and ushering. I said Ron just took the initiative this morning to do that. Um, uh, church directory, you know, we need work on that. And I think Bev is also doing that. Kelly's working on a church website. But if you are interested in any of those ministries, 
Talk to people who are leading those up. Those are ways for you to get plugged in to North Valley Bible Church. All right. Whew. I tried to do that quick. <laughs> but I wanted you to have a sense of why am I coming to North Valley Bible Church? Where are we going? There's so much more that I could have put up there. Eventually, wouldn't it be so exciting to see North Valley Bible Church reproducing another church? That's the ultimate goal of all of this. All right, Acts chapter 19. When God, as at, when God is at work, the enemy is not far behind. I want to tell you a story to introduce my message this morning about a guy named John Frederick. He had been knighted by the king of England. He was Sir John, and he was an aviator. And he decided he was going to find a passage called the Northwest Passage through the Arctic Ocean. And he was going to discover this great passageway that was going to cut down shipping time and really enhance England's ability to control the seas. And so he got prepared for this. Two beautiful ships, 138 great seamen, prepared for this mission. But they didn't take into account the enemy that was facing them. The enemy was the Arctic Ocean itself and 70 below zero weather. They only took enough coal for 12 days if the engines broke down. They had their thin little uniforms that looked beautiful on the outside, but they were worthless in the Arctic cold. This endeavor is best known not because of its success, but because of its utter failure and unpreparedness for the enemy that was facing them. Both ships were lost and not a single person returned. Oh, they were ready for whatever might come their way. They had two volumes on each ship of a hundred, I'm sorry, 1,200 books in a library. And they're going to the Arctic. Nothing wrong with reading, but that's not how you prepare yourself. They had cuttery and silverware and all this magnificent uh, food preparations for the officers but they thought nothing about the Arctic winter that was facing them. You know, and many Christians come to Christ because they hear the plea, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Have your best life now. That's not the message that Jesus gave. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. Jesus said the time will come that they will put you out of the synagogues and those who kill you will think they're doing God a service. That is what we as believers need to be prepared for. In America, I think it's coming much quicker than any of us could ever predict. Now, I'm not trying to be this naysayer. But if the Democrats, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to talk about political things, but I'm going to. If the Democrats have their way, expository preaching that talks about hell, human sexuality, those could be considered a hate crime. And we as a church need to prepare. 
We need to say if God is going to bless us and we are going to grow and we are going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells people they are lost sinners on a pathway to destruction called hell, we will be considered narrow-minded, hate-mongering bigots. That's just where we're at politically in our country. And when God is at work, the enemy is not going to be far behind. And Paul saw that wherever he went. And the city of Ephesus was no exception. I want you to turn over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I want you to see Paul writing his first letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus and what he says. So turn over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. And Paul is writing this letter... While he's at Ephesus, his three-year stay at Ephesus, he's writing this letter. Listen to what he says. He says, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. He's made this decision. I'm going to remain a long time. Epimeno. I'm going to abide a long time at Ephesus up until the time of Pentecost. And then we have the reason with the word for. For a great and effective door, or great and effectual door. I like literal translations of our Bible. The New King James, the Old King James, the NASB. These are very little translations, and this is exactly what the Greek says. I'm going to stay at Ephesus for a long time, and the reason is for a great and effective door. Two adjectives that are used to describe the door. A great and effective door. And another reason, a second reason why he's going to stay, look at why, there are many adversaries. Paul says, I can't afford to leave for two reasons. I'm not going to leave because a door is opened, and I'm not going to leave because there are many, many adversaries. Let's just ponder what this means right here. What does the word door mean? It's a figurative term here, isn't it? It's not a literal door. And so when Paul uses door in this way, What Paul is meaning is that there is an opportunity that has been brought about by the providential hand of God. That's what the word door means. It means God providentially has brought this opportunity about, not by accident. It is God's doing. God is doing this. And how does Paul describe this door? He calls it a great door, a mega door. Now, what does Paul mean? Now, we know the book of Ephesus, what's going on in the book of Acts, don't we? Acts chapter 19, what was God doing in Ephesus? Paul arrives at Ephesus and he meets a bunch of disciples of John the Baptist. Who was in the synagogue before Paul ever got there? A guy named Apollos. Apollos was an eloquent man in speech and he was mighty in the scriptures and he was confounding many Jews. All he knew was the baptism of John the Baptist. And when Paul got there, a great door had been opened to him because he stumbles into some disciples of John the Baptist who had been in the synagogue week after week after week listening to the expository teaching of Apollos. A great door. Not only was it a great door, he got there to Ephesus, and he was invited to the synagogue for three months. A great door had been opened to him. Most of the time, Paul would be in the synagogue for two weeks. At Ephesus, he was there for three months, reasoning, giving logical explanations, and persuading 
drawing people with effectual, passionate speeches so that people would trust and believe in Jesus. For three months he was doing that. When that door went closed, the school of Tyrannius was open to him, and for two years daily, Paul said, I was able to reason from the Scripture. And what was the result of that? All of Asia was hearing the Word of God. Paul says, I am going to remain because God is at work. But not only was God at work, there were many adversaries. All those guys that made their living from making those little statues of Diana and Artemis, they were getting pretty upset. They were finding that their income was going down because no longer were people buying little temples, no longer were they buying those little idols. And he says, our entire business is ready to collapse because this guy, Paul, is going everywhere saying there are not gods made with hands. So when God is at work, we're going to see adversaries. Now let's go over and see what God was doing other than what we just talked about. Meeting disciples, going to the synagogue, teaching into the school of Tyrannius. What else was God doing that was so special in the city of Ephesus? Acts chapter 19 and verse 11 tells us. Acts 19 and 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. That's pretty pretty dramatic, isn't it? I mean, Paul's always working miracles, isn't he? But when the Bible says that Paul worked unusual miracles, there's something special. What is going on at Ephesus that God is going to work unusual miracles? Let's just look at this verse closely, first of all. Who's working the miracles? It's not Paul, is it? It is God. And how is God doing it? God is doing it through the hands or by Paul. I believe with all my heart that God wants to do great things through His people. God wants to work through our lives. That's how God has always done it. God has found servants who are willing. Who will go for us, Lord? Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. God works through When Cornelius wanted to hear the gospel, an angel came and said, go and call for Peter. God works through people. What's the word uncommon, unusual? I want to give you five reasons why I think God was doing some unusual, uncommon things at Ephesus. The first reason, I think, is because Ephesus of its location. Ephesus was the chief city of Asia Minor. It was the trade route. Everybody had to come through Ephesus. Every boat, every ship, every, every sailor. And when they came to Ephesus, they all went to the goddess house of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was mysticism. There were secret symbols in that temple. There was spiritism, the occult. There was magic arts. There was books on witchcraft. And when you go into uncharted territory, and Satan has a strong grip on a place, God is going to do uncommon, unusual 
miracles. Remember reading a story to my boys called Lords of the Earth. Kelly will remember this in Jordan. A guy named Stanley Dale went to Arian Gyra, went into the heart of paganism, witch doctors, fetishes, spells, enchantments, demonic spirits speaking through mediums. And Stanley Dale says, I don't give a flip for any of this stuff. And he would walk right into their temples. He would pile it all up, walk out to a fire and burn it. And people look at him and say, he's going to have a curse on him. And nothing happened to Stanley Dale. Why? Because he was right in the face of Satan. He says, I'm going to do some unusual things here. Other missionaries haven't tried this. I'm going to try it. The gospel started to spread through the northern Haluk Valley. People were leaving their idolatry, leaving the witch doctrine. He was losing control. It got message down to the southern Haluk Valley that there's a nut up here named Stanley Dale, a white guy, and you've got to kill him. He says, I am going to take the message right into the heart of the southern Haluk Valley. He heads off, goes over mountain tops, over fords rivers. He is surrounded by a tribe, and they begin firing arrows at him. Long bladed arrows, and they hit him in the stomach. They hit him in the spleen, hit him in the thigh, hit him in the back, and he just takes them and snaps them off. They run in fear. Well, he's not superhuman. He collapses to the ground after they'd already ran off and fled. Took him two days to make it back, and when he did, infection had ran through his entire abdomen, and a helicopter happened to be there with a surgeon and a nurse. For two days, they repair this guy's body. He's convinced that he's to go back, so he starts doing exercises. He starts doing core workouts. He starts running up and down the mountain with boulders on his shoulders. He's convinced, I'm going right back. Word gets out into the Haluk Valley, you didn't kill this guy. And they're saying, what in the world? Who is his Kimbu spirit? Who is his protector? Who is his mighty God? And he brings the gospel right back to those people. God works unusually in special ways when you're going into Satan's territory. And I believe with all my heart that Utah is one of those places where Satan has had a stronghold. And we need to ask God to do special things through our church, through our lives, to reach out to people with the gospel. A second reason that God does unusual miracles through Paul that he might not do through my life is because Paul was an apostle. In Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12 says, Paul says, I have the signs of an apostle by mighty deeds and wonders. And the other guys are false apostles. Uncommon and unusual miracles are not for everyone, are they? They are for, if they were for everybody, they wouldn't be a credential for an apostle, would they? Think about that. If I could do unusual miracles, what would make Paul's any different? So the signs of an apostle were unusual, uncommon things that God did through these men to authenticate their office. Another reason God did this was to validate the gospel message. Now, I don't want you just to take my word for it, so let's turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we'll start reading at verse 14. And we're just going to do a little... Bible study of this really quick, but my point is that miracles were done by the early apostles to validate their authority as an apostle, but also 
to validate the gospel. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. We'll read to verse 19. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you why. Because of the grace given to me by God. Paul said, I have got a special gift by God and I'm writing more bold to you. What is Paul's special grace that he had that other people didn't have? Verse 16, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That was a special enablement that Paul had that other people didn't have. Ministering the gospel of God to the offering the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things pertaining to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Paul says, I'm not going to talk about anything that I've done. I'm going to talk about all the things that Jesus Christ did through me so that the Gentiles might be converted through the gospel. Now, how did Paul authenticate that gospel that it was direct revelation from God? Verse 19. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God, so as a result from Jerusalem around about Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So that's a third reason. The fourth reason, I think, is application for you and I. When we read this historical narrative, Paul doing unusual miracles, What does that mean for me? Uncommon things that God wants to do. Well, I've already expressed one. I think it tells us when we are in Satan's stronghold that he is not going to give control over to a place that he has held bondage for years and years and years unless God works powerfully and mightily through his people. And God, I believe, wants to do that through us. Secondly, these aprons, these napkins that were taken from Paul, diseases went out, right? Demons went out. What is the power that we have? The power that you and I have is the gospel. That is what delivers people out of the power of darkness and translates people into the kingdom of their dear son, his dear son. In Colossians, it tells us that the gospel brings down strongholds. The gospel takes people out of Satan's dominion. It is the gospel and the cross that triumphs over Satan, makes it spectacle of Satan's limited power. And the power of Satan is the power of death and to bring disease and demonic possession in people. And it's the gospel that sets people free. What spiritual warfare is? Spiritual warfare is telling people about Jesus Christ, letting the cross set them free from Satan's lies and his dominion. That is spiritual warfare. And so this is for us today to take application. And thirdly, those aprons and those those. Napkins, whatever Paul was sending, it allowed him to reach more people who were not able to come to him. Do you and I have that same ability? Oh, yes, we do. Through the power of prayer. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 18. Is there anybody sick among you? Let him call for the elders. Let him pray over him and anointing him in oil in the name of the Lord. And his sins will be forgiven. The prayer of faith will save the sick. 
Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. Why? Because the effectual, fervent prayers of righteous people avail much. And how do we know that? Elijah was a man subject to like passions just as we are. You think about that, Adam. Elijah was no different from me and you. He had the same temptations. He had the same hang-ups. He had the same lust that every dude has. And the Bible says that he was just like us, yet he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not for the space of three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave it rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. So I believe this passage is in here because Paul is telling us that you can affect a lot of different people just through the power of prayer, and that's available to all of us. Opposition further displays the reality of Christ in the gospel. Opposition affirms the genuineness work of Christ. When you're opposed, and when God is opposing you, and you're trying to do something for God, and you find yourself in opposition, you know what that does? It affirms the genuineness of the work of Christ. I'm not going to go back to chapter 19. I'm just going to make reference to it. A bunch of phonies, exorcists, they tried to do the same thing that what Paul did. And what did it do? It exposed that they were a bunch of phonies. When people hear the true message of Jesus Christ and His power to forgive sin, to make you a new creation in Christ, it exposes those Gospels as worthless and powerless to change lives. That's what they said. You remember over in Exodus chapter, thir- chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 19? The magicians, they were doing all the stuff, weren't they? Until they got to the lice. They could not make lice into dust. And you know what they said? The magician says, "Uh uh-uh. We are out of ammunition. This is the finger of God. When people look at your life and they see a changed heart, they will say, this is the genuine work of Christ. Secondly, opposition will bring about a time for reflection. What did these people do? They begin to confess their deeds. They begin to reflect. And they begin, began to sanctify their lives. What literature do I have on my bookshelf that's not honoring God? What do I have in my refrigerator that doesn't honor God? What do I watch on the television that doesn't honor God? When my mother-in-law got saved, she went home, she got her go-go boots and her miniskirts. <laughs> I kid you not. She got her Elvis Presley records. Those things are probably worth a mint today. She took them out in her backyard. She piled them up, poured gasoline on it, and put them to a match. My father-in-law already thought my mother-in-law was loopy. <laughs> Seriously, he he thought she's she's losing it. She doesn't want to go to the parties anymore. She doesn't want to listen to Elvis anymore. All she wants to do is go to church. All she wants to do is pray. All she wants to do is worship Jesus. She's too happy. It can't be real. He's coming home at lunch, and he sees this pillar of smoke going up in his backyard, and he says, oh, my gosh, my house is on fire. He comes around the corner, and it's his wife having a bonfire with all of her stuff out there. That's the power of the gospel. And this passage ends by saying, and there was a great commotion about the way. That's who we are. 
We're people of the way of Jesus. And I pray that we can start a great commotion in northern Utah. But my friends, let's not be like Sir John Frederick, thinking we're going to go on a Caribbean cruise. No, we're heading into the jaws of death. And let's be prepared for the enemy. Let's double down like Paul did. There's many adversaries, and I'm not going anywhere. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've left us an accurate historical record of what you did in the early first century. And God, you are still on your throne. And we ask you, Lord, to work through us. God, open doors, open great doors, open effective doors so that your word will go forth and run swiftly and bring people into the kingdom of heaven through North Valley Bible Church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.